You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Okay, this morning, I promised uh, last week I'd be telling you how to become rich this week. So, if you've got your Bibles, you might like to um, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we'll be spending most of our time this week. And Harley last week uh, shared one of the verses in his preach um, from out of this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So obviously if I'm uh, telling you how to become rich, I'm going to have to talk about that dreaded topic of money. I suspect most pastors probably hate preaching on the subject of money, and, and I'm no different in that. Um, money's not a very big concern for me, partly because God's blessed me, but, but uh, I've never been particularly worried about it. But uh, uh, I suspect most people hate to hear preaching about money and about giving too. That's been my experience in the past. I haven't liked to have heard it. But I wonder why that would be. Why would people hate to hear preaching about money? Well, actually, I don't really wonder. I think I do know why. I think we've all been subjected at various times, if you've been in the church for very long, you certainly would have, to the guilt trip sermons about tithing. If you don't tithe, you're under a curse. If you don't tithe, God can't bless you. We've all heard stories of greed and corruption and abuse of the the money that comes into the church. Um, We've all questioned what happens to the money that we give to the church and whether we can trust the leadership with that money. And we've all heard the prosperity gospel preachers telling us that if you give, and it's usually if you give to them, then God will make you wealthy in return. You know, of course, that the gospel has never been about money. It's never been about wealth. It's never been about fame or power. You do know that, don't you? That's an American invention, the gospel of wealth, the gospel of power. It's an idea that probably couldn't have arisen in any other country on the planet but America. But sadly, it taints our view of money and it taints our view of giving to the church. But I'd ask that you don't let your disgust at the methods and the manipulation and the abuses of these celebrity preachers stop you from giving where it should be given. The first place you should be giving is the local church, which for us is right here. The local church has been God's plan for the extension of his kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel for 2,000 years. It hasn't been the RSPCA. It hasn't been Red Cross It hasn't even been world vision. It's been the local church for 2,000 years as God's plan to advance the gospel. And his plan hasn't changed and it won't change 
until Jesus comes again and then it won't be needed after Jesus comes again. So my desire is for you to give and to give generously but that has nothing to do with wealth but everything to do with obedience to the word of God and everything to do with advancing the gospel. For the becoming rich that I intend to talk about this morning has nothing to do with how wealthy you are. In fact, we'll see shortly in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 that becoming rich is available for the poorest of the poor as they remain in their poverty. Usually when you hear a message about giving, the main point is that you need to be tithing and you need to be tithing every week. So for those who are not sure, tithing, the tithe is just a a word that means 10%. So effectively tithing means you give 10% of your income or your wealth, whatever it may be, on a regular basis. So if you hear someone talking about tithing, that's what they mean, 10%. Let me say at the outset that I don't believe tithing is a New Testament requirement. Uh, A few years ago, Tony preached, I think, a three-part series on tithing. That was outstanding. It was the best stuff I think I've ever heard on it. And uh, he went into a lot of depth in there. That's... that's, we, we do have recordings there. If anyone wants to listen to it again, let me know and we'll get you the recordings of it um, because it was brilliant stuff. But when I, say, when I say that tithing is not a New Testament requirement, maybe some of you will breathe a sigh of relief at that. Maybe you'll think, phew, I'm off the hook. I can keep my wallet in my pocket now. If that's your first reaction, there's a problem. There's a problem. But let's see if we can address that today and, of course, next week because we're not going to get anywhere near through this this week. We won't even get through the passage I want to read. But now I go against the grain. I know I go against the grain of many, maybe most churches, in this respect, and I have some small degree of sympathy for them when they call for tithing as a Christian practice because it costs money to run a church. We don't get this for free. We don't get this facility. We don't get the various benefits for free. And even if we're frugal with our money, even if we have, we're careful not to waste a cent of it, it still costs money. I'll talk about that more again next week because I also intend to talk a bit next week about the state of the church finances and where we spend our money in the church. Um, But you might have a number of questions and objections today such as the early church didn't need a building, why do we? Or maybe, why not meet in homes? They used to do that in the New Testament as well. Or you might be thinking, well they still managed to meet in house churches in the homes in China and Afghanistan and places like that. Why can't we do the same? And another question or objection you might have is this is the 21st century. There's plenty of churches that do it remotely, do it online now. You can actually log in online and attend church. And for those who are hearing this on the the, uh, audio later on, quotation marks around attend church. Yeah, in the comfort of your own home. You won't even have to get out of bed if you don't want to. 
Now if you're thinking about any of those questions, you'll need to come back and hear the next part next week when I address some of those. But here in Australia in 2019, it's really only practical and practicable for a church to meet in a publicly accessible space. And that costs money. There's certain costs, as I mentioned, associated with running a church and costs which are unavoidable for any church in Australia. It's my understanding that the Bible doesn't require tithing in the Christian era. The Bible does expect you to give, however, and to give generously. Whether your, your giving is considered generous varies according to your means. And I hope uh, we'll see that as we go through some of this passage this morning. But before we get into that particular passage... I want to mention that tithing is referred to 27 times in the Old Testament but it's only referred to seven times in the New Testament. Four of those references are historical references where in the book of Hebrews it talks about uh, Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. It's not making any comment on whether this is a current practice. It's just stating that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The other three mentions are by Jesus in the Gospels where he's criticising the Pharisees for their legalism and their hypocrisy. Um, and Jesus doesn't say don't tithe. He does say add to this, such and such. But I might mention they're all pre-cross references to tithing. You won't find any other. I can't find any other. But the issue of money is an important topic in the New Testament. Nearly half of Jesus' parables deal with money or possessions. 10% of the gospel verses deal with the subject. And apparently, I haven't searched this out myself, but apparently there are four times as many verses on on this subject in the Bible than there are on faith or on prayer. That might be significant. So clearly money and how we use our money and our attitude to our money is important. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's important because our attitude to money reveals our heart. That's tough to hear. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He didn't say where your heart is, there you'll put your treasure. He said where your treasure is already, that's what you will be drawn to. What we place the highest value on will be what attracts our heart, our love, our devotion. In fact, what we place the most value on will reveal our heart. That may be money and possessions, it may be family, it may be power, it may be work, it may be reputation, prestige. Our greatest treasure, though, should be Christ. For if Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure then everything else will settle in to the rightful place in the hierarchy of treasures. Everything else will assume the correct degree of importance to us, including how tightly we want to hang on to our money. So as I said, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is probably the most important passage in the Bible about money and giving. And we won't have time to get through all of it, Um, we'll read chapter 8 
Hopefully we'll get to the second half of chapter 8. We'll read all of chapter 8 now. Hopefully next week we'll get to the second half of chapter 8 and chapter 9. We'll see how we go because there's plenty of other things I need to talk about. Um, but let's start at verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. And as we read it, take notice about how little it says about the expectation that we should be wealthy just because we're Christians. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 We want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, then it's there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So let's get into our text, shall we? Starting with verses 1 and 2. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. It's important that we read this whole passage, these whole couple of chapters in the light of this grace that Paul's talking about here. If you're looking to the grace of God to make you financially rich, you'll miss out on the type of grace that these believers enjoyed. And it seems to have been a pretty powerful grace. Why wouldn't you want to experience that? The Macedonian churches had experienced a grace that had little, probably nothing to do with monetary wealth. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to learn that the greatest grace that we experience is usually not in the most comfortable of situations but in the most dire of circumstances. You don't live very long as a Christian before you find that out. These people, these Macedonians, had experienced God's grace. But then they heard that there was a famine in Jerusalem and Judea and the Christians there were suffering terribly. Now the Christians weren't very popular amongst the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem. They refused to bow down to the Roman gods and to Caesar. They believed that Jesus was a god and uh, therefore were heretics at, at minimum amongst the Jews. So they weren't very popular. They didn't get very much support. But in the severe test of affliction, Paul says to the Corinthian church, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The grace that that Macedonian church was experiencing was in the midst of a severe test of affliction. It wasn't in their comfort. It wasn't in their abundance. In fact, it sounds as if the Macedonian church was probably suffering as much as the Christians in Jerusalem. But it was in the midst of their extreme poverty and not in their wealth that they experienced grace. Few of us in Australia experience extreme poverty. Few of us experience true poverty, let alone extreme poverty. Government support and charities may not be sufficient for comfortable living, but they are at least enough to avoid extreme poverty. But the Macedonian churches were living in extreme poverty. It's hard to imagine that things could have got worse for them in a time when there was zero help to support them. But they overflowed in a wealth of generosity because of the joy that they had experienced at God's grace. And Paul goes on to say in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. What does it look like to give the way God wants us to give? You remember Jesus talking about the poor widow in Luke 21. Jesus said he looked up, it says there, he looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, 
But she, out of her poverty, has been put in all she had to live on. Does that sound to you anything like the Macedonian churches? Given out of her poverty all she had to live on. The rich people may have put in tens of thousands of dollars but who did Jesus commend? He commended the widow who put in two tiny coins in our terms ten cents. How many of us would miss ten cents? None of us. We get overcharged sometimes $10 or $100 on something and we don't miss it because we don't look closely enough. We wouldn't miss 10 cents. And yet this was all she had to live on. But the rich were so rich they wouldn't miss their offering. The poor widow gave out of her poverty but she gave according to her means. And indeed she gave beyond her means. This passage is one of the reasons why I say that tithing is not required. For some people, 10% is a pittance. It's meaningless money to them. They wouldn't even notice it. Imagine for a moment you are super rich and you earn $10 million a year. Nice thought. If you tithed, you would give a million dollars a year. That's a staggering figure. Most of us can't imagine giving a million dollars a year to anything. But would you struggle to get by on the remaining nine million dollars? The answer is yes. You have a severe problem. (laughs) In actual fact, you shouldn't even miss that million dollars because you've got more money than you can spend in your lifetime. If your income is only $10,000 a year, giving $1,000 hurts, especially if you've got a family to raise. That's the difference between the rich people in that story and the poor widow. It's the difference between most of us Australians and the Macedonian church. Indeed, it's the difference between most of us Australians and most of the rest of the world. For us, The only reason 10% hurts is because we've been wasteful with our money. It's not because we're truly poor. You may have noticed in there that Paul didn't demand the Macedonian church give 10%. Rather, he commended them for giving of their own accord. That's the pattern right through the New Testament. There isn't a demand for 10% anywhere in it. But there is an expectation of giving of your own accord according to your means and in response to the grace of God towards you. That might mean that you need to examine your spending habits. It might mean you need to establish your priorities. It might mean you need to prepare a budget so that you're able to be generous. There are things for another time and place. But most of us in Australia are that wasteful, we probably need to examine our spending habits so that we can afford to be generous. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, They were begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now remember, they were giving out of their extreme poverty. They weren't just short of a bit of cash to pay the power bill this week, but next week we'll get over the hump. 
They were in the midst of their poverty, but they begged earnestly to be able to give. Can you imagine that? You've got 10 cents left in the bank account. You've got no sign of any money coming in again. And you beg earnestly to give that 10 cents away. Have you ever done that? Have you ever begged earnestly to give your money away? Even if you had an abundance, have you begged earnestly to give it away? Probably not. I haven't. If money was as tight for me as it was for the Macedonians, I would probably be begging earnestly to be given money, not the other way around. I heard something this past week as I was preparing that's both humorous and confronting. And it's confronting because it may reveal the state of our hearts in relation to money. It may just reveal where our treasure really is. People often get upset when they hear a pastor preach about money and about giving and they respond with, see, the church just wants my money. You've heard that before? Maybe you've even said it before. The church just wants my money. Well, Harvey Norman wants your money too. But when the Harvey Norman commercial comes on TV, you don't complain, see Harvey Norman just wants my money. In fact, you're more likely to say, come and have a look at this, Harvey Norman's 20% off everything store-wide this weekend. Can we go? Can we go? Please. We beg to give our money to Harvey Norman because they've got a sale on. We beg to go out and buy stuff that may not even last a year before it breaks down. We beg to buy junk and trinkets and give our money where it does no eternal good. The Macedonians begged to be able to give to the poor. In fact, they considered it a favour to take part in the relief of the saints. That word favour there doesn't exactly come out in English the way it is in the Greek. But it's exactly the same word in the Greek as the word grace in the first verse. You remember what that said? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. And they're begging for the grace of being able to give. Not sure if you've ever noticed, but Grace doesn't normally ask, what's in it for me? Grace doesn't usually say, how will I benefit? Rather, Grace asks, what can I do for others? How can I serve them? How can I help them? It's a grace to be able to give. And your giving to be grace-filled must be given freely and without conditions. It will be undeserved, unearned by the recipient. But as Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. Going on into verse 5, and this, Paul says, is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. seems that Paul was surprised to hear that the Macedonian churches were begging to give because he must have known how poor they really were. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, it says. 
What does it mean that they gave themselves first to the Lord? I'm not entirely sure, but I suspect it may mean that they recognised the grace of God that they had received. And they committed their situation to the Lord. They may have prayed something like this, Lord, these are my last two coins, but the saints in Jerusalem need them more than I do. So I want to give them, give them to them. And I will trust you, Lord, to multiply it for them. And I'll also trust you, Lord, to provide for me here. Because you promised, Lord, that if I seek first your kingdom, you will look after my earthly needs. Maybe that's what Paul means when he says they gave themselves first to the Lord. Incidentally, if you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life, you might take some inspiration from this passage because the Macedonians seem to understand what God's will was for them. By the will of God, they gave themselves to Paul and his companions and to the giving. Strangely for the Macedonians, the will of God wasn't to become financially wealthy. In fact, the will of God for the Macedonians seemed to be to become even poorer by giving away the tiny little bit that they had. The Macedonians were rich in ways that few of us will ever understand, I think. Before you get the idea that I'm suggesting all Christians should be poor, they're not. Not at all. God calls some people to be poor. He calls some people to be wealthy. And he calls most of us to be somewhere in between. But the point is money and possessions are never to be our treasure. There's plenty of examples of wealthy believers in the New Testament. Nicodemus, for example, was a Pharisee, so he was most likely pretty wealthy. Jesus had a number of women providing financial support for his ministry. That money must have come from somewhere. He had enough money in the bag that he appointed Judas to look after and embezzle his money. Judas was his treasurer. Then there was Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who provided the tomb that they put Jesus' body in. You notice Jesus didn't bat an eyelid when Mary poured out expensive perfume on his feet. It says, I can't remember how much it said the value of it was, but in today's terms it works out to most of a year's wage. Now the average wage in Australia apparently is seventy, eighty thousand dollars now. It's a pretty staggering figure. If we're conservative, let's just say that perfume is worth thirty thousand dollars. Who of us have got a thirty thousand dollar bottle of perfume at home to pour out? Jesus didn't seem to have any sort any problem with the sort of wealth that could afford perfume worth tens of thousands of dollars. And then when we look in the book of Acts, there's Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. Wealth is not a sin. I once read a biography called Mover of Men and Mountains about a man by the name of R.G. Latourneau. Latourneau was an American who invented heavy earth-moving machinery, the big um, backhoes and diggers and excavators and things like that, bulldozers the really big heavy stuff, he invented it, he became extremely wealthy 
as a result of it. But he was a committed Christian and he was committed to the advance of the gospel. So he gave away 90% of his income and he gave away 90% of the company profits as well to advance the gospel and he still had more money than he could spend in his lifetime. God blessed him financially beyond the wildest dreams of most believers. So wealth is not a problem. Wealth is not a sin. Our attachment to wealth is the problem. Wealth with the right attitude is a great blessing. The wealthy can do things with their money and wealthy churches can do things with money that most of us couldn't conceive of doing. Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, Accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We may be giants of the faith. We may be effective evangelists. We may be learned theologians. We may be passionate followers of Christ. But there's another grace we can add to our repertoire. Generous giving. In fact, I'm almost tempted to call generous giving a spiritual discipline because if we have a heart to give generously, we'll be reflecting Christ who gave everything for us and growing to be more like him every day. Now the Gospels give us a strong warning about the power of money and its ability to take captive our hearts. It's a story that's told in three different Gospels And you know, when the same story is told in three different Gospels, God's trying to get your attention. He's repeating himself so that you notice. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? This man seems to have excelled in faith. He claims to have kept all of the commandments and Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say you've missed out on this particular one, you've committed adultery or something. But Jesus put his finger on exactly where this man's treasure was. His treasure was his possessions, not his God. 
It's not wealth that's the trap for us. It's how much we love our wealth. It's how much we treasure our possessions. It's how tightly we try to hang on to our money. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's really a simple test. How do you feel about giving your money away to someone else? What if God called you to give up everything you own? What if he asked you to give it to someone you know will squander it? How difficult would that be? For how we respond to a call like that reveals much about where our treasure is. Now there, hypothetical situations, you're probably not going to be asked to give up everything you own and give it to someone who will squander it. If we get a bit closer to home, what's your gut response when you hear preaching on giving, on tithing, budgeting, generosity? Does it stir you to find ways to give more? Or does it make you angry or even critical? Does it make you complain, they're only after my money? Your reaction to this message today may reveal more about your heart than you care to know may reveal more about your heart than you want others to know. A couple more verses and then we'll have to call it time for today. Verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Back in verse 3, Paul made the point that they gave of their own accord. Here again, Paul's not laying down the law to them. He's not demanding a certain percentage. But he is encouraging them that their giving must come from a heart of gratitude to the Lord and a heart of love for others. Their willingness to give generously is a sign that their love is genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Can you understand why Paul and why the Bible would ask us to be generous in response to God's grace? You can't take it with you. That's the simple answer. You can't take it with you. The Lord is asking us to give up temporal things, earthly things, things that have no real value, in exchange for things that have eternal value. You can't take your money with you to heaven. It'd be worthless there anyway. The streets are paved with gold. The gates are made of pearl. What would our mere money do for us in heaven? You wouldn't even wipe your backside in the toilet with the paper because the abundance of wealth in heaven is staggering. Pure gold and pearls. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Is there anything in the passage that we've read today that suggests that the richness, the wealth that Paul is talking about is material wealth? Is he suggesting we'll drive a new Porsche and live in a 60 square mansion in Turak? It may be that God chooses to bless you that way. 
If he does, give thanks to him. What a wonderful blessing it is. But that's not what the gospel is all about. There's a richness in the gospel. A wealth of grace from God that the prosperity gospel preachers know nothing about. There's a richness to being able to bless others with our abundance and even to bless them from within our poverty. So where is your treasure? As you examine your own heart and your reaction to this this morning, what do you find there? Do you need to do business with God about your attitude to money? I heard someone comment recently that the people who get most upset at preaching about money are those who are the least likely to be generous. I find that believable. But I hope that's not any of you. I'm sure it's not any of you. I know you too well. But then I don't know what's going on in your heart and your thoughts at the moment. Where is your treasure? Do you first need to do business with God about your relationship with him? Jesus laid it all down on your behalf. It's called grace. It means that not only are you not getting the punishment that you do deserve for your rejection of God, but that he is offering to you eternal life that you don't deserve instead. Do you need to do business with God about your relationship with him? Once you do that business with him, once you've done that, you qualify to experience the joy and the blessings and the everyday grace that the Macedonians experienced in every situation of life, wealth or poverty. It's a grace and a joy that overflows in generosity. For everyone else who doesn't fit those first couple, would you, though you are rich, be willing to become poor so that others might become rich. Would you allow the Macedonian church to inspire you to generosity? For that is true wealth. Knowing the grace of God, loving the brothers and the sisters, meeting the needs of the saints wherever they may be found, that is true wealth. To join me in a closing prayer. Father, for too much of my life I've put my confidence in myself, my own abilities and my bank account to keep me stable. Lord, my treasure has been in the wrong place too often. Today, Lord, I repent of that and I ask you to wash me clean from it all and to put a heart of generosity in me, Lord. I want to reflect my Saviour Jesus Christ, your son, who though he was rich, became poor for my sake, that I might know a richness and a wealth in him that has nothing to do with money. Help me, Lord. Help me to be transformed in my thinking. Help me to be transformed in my desires. Help me to be transformed in my attitude to money. Help me, Lord, to use my wealth as large or as small as it may be 
for your glory and for the advancement of the gospel. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next week, as I say, we'll be continuing on with 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I might talk maybe a little bit more about tithing. We'll see how we go. And as I said, I'll also be giving you an update about where we are as a church with our finances and what we do with our finances. And uh, there are a number of other ministries that, uh, that we bless and intend to continue to bless and some of those you might like to get behind as well. So I'll talk about that more next week. Um, God bless you all. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.